This episode is brought to you by Mountain Sea Media. I spent half my life near the Pacific Ocean and the other half in the mountains of Central Oregon. These places are full of profound stories and experiences that guide my life, even now as a media creator and a beer professional. This is how Mountain Sea Media was born. I realized how impactful stories are to our lives and business. Stories share good experiences and the warmth of friends. They improve business by sharing these experiences and connecting deeply with our customers. If you'd like to connect better with your customers through copywriting and storytelling, contact me at jeremy at mountainseamedia.com. It's your story. I'll help you tell it. Welcome to episode 31 of Good Beer Matters. You know, I don't think we're in a bubble, but we are moving to a more competitive industry. It's no longer as much a rising tide raises all boats, that there's a little bit more of a, a zero-sum game going on. You know, some of this is just not things collapsing, but a return to normalcy. You know, I would probably find a, a niche that I didn't think was being served locally that you could see a model where it's worked in some other place. If you have heard someone talk about bubbles, saturation points, market corrections, or competition amongst suppliers, then chances are they're talking about breweries. After a recent explosion in the 2010s, there are far more than 7,000 breweries currently in the U.S. American beer sales are well over $1 billion, and that doesn't even account for businesses indirectly related to beer. Meanwhile, consumers have pulled away from beer by an abundance of options from wine, spirits, hard seltzers, kombuchas, and more. It seems the incoming tide of beer may have raised all the ships, but now they must focus on staying afloat. The Brewers Association crunches numbers and stats for the benefit of independent breweries in the U.S. Today's guest helps us understand these stats and gives us a little insight as to how these breweries can differentiate themselves despite the crowd. My name is Jeremy. I'm a certified Cicerone, BJCP judge, IBD certified brewer, and a beer writer. I believe the art, the science, and the culture of beer has more of a profound effect on us than we realize. I believe there's a world of wisdom found in every glass, and I intend to get to the bottom of it. This is Good Beer Matters. These are the stories of us, of great food and the beer that brings it all together. I hope you enjoy episode 31 of Good Beer Matters with Brewers Association's Chief Economist, Bart Watson. Uh, you'll see uh, this gentleman's face and many, many, many of his articles and his, um, uh, with him expounding on the economy and the stats and, uh, and to some extent, uh, well, to where we've been and to some extent where we're going. But uh, I want to introduce um, Bart Watson to the Good Beer Matters community. Bart, thank you for being on the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to be here and talk. Awesome. Well, I I, I know you have a thing for beer and numbers, so um, that that's really what I want to talk about. But but first, Jeff, there there might be a few people out there that are not that familiar with the Brewers Association that may not be that familiar with what you do. Can you uh, just share a little bit about that? Yeah, I would love to. Uh, the Brewers Association is the national not-for-profit trade association that represents America's small and independent craft brewers. Uh, we've got members all over the country. About 70% of the breweries 
in the country are, are members of the Brewers Association. So we have about 5,000 brewery members as well as other membership types. Um, our mission is to promote and protect small and independent craft brewers. So we do that in a variety of ways. Um, on the promote side, we, we have consumer-facing site, craftbeer.com. We put on events, things like, you know, Sabre Beer and Food Pairing in D.C., as well as the Great American Beer Festival. Um, and on the protect side, we do government affairs at the federal level and, and support, um, you know, state-level efforts to improve market access for, for small and independent brewers. Um, one of the other big things we do is we provide resources for small brewers, and, and that's really where I come in. Um, you know, providing statistics to track the industry, you know, analysis about how things are changing. You know, I, I do a lot of individual member requests as well. Um, and really trying to quantify the industry so that, you know, our brewery members can make more informed decisions in the marketplace and hopefully steer their businesses in the right direction to be successful. Yeah. Thank you for that. Um, you know, 10 years ago, uh, the the craft beer industry was the was was just like on a verge of a big boom. Um, and, and in fact, recently I saw I don't know how old this post was or how new this post was, but you put together basically a um, it was essentially a, a dynamic timeline or or almost like a a, a video time lapse, but uh, where you showed. Um, uh, all the all the uh, breweries from uh, the beginning of the century all the way through, and just kind of showed as the decades ticked by um, how much growth there was, and it was a pretty steady, uh, slow and steady upward growth until right about eight ten years ago. Then all of a sudden, the whole map just lit up like a Christmas tree. Um, can you talk a little bit about what was going on with that? Yeah, sure. Uh, yeah, I think it's, you know, sometimes those visualizations really help people to, you know, comprehend how much of a transformation we've seen in the last few years in terms of the number of breweries. I mean, if you go back, you know, a decade, um, you know, there were still 1,500 breweries in the country, and we're now over 7,000. Um, you know, that's a tremendous amount of openings in a very, very short time. And you know, one of the things that's crazy about it, and hopefully that animation got across, is that it's actually accelerating. You know, that the growth of breweries isn't linear, it's exponential. Um, and, you know, while that has to come to an end at some point, I mean, we're not going to be a country where every business is a brewery, um, you know, we haven't really seen the end to it yet. And, and we're still seeing this, this incredible brewery explosion that's, that's occurring not just in a few places, but really all over the country. And, and, I think this uh, this kind of speaks to um, the the overall uh, economic recession back in 2008. I mean, there was just this this dynamic housing boom, and where kind of like in the beer industry, probably eight ten years ago, everyone is slapping high fives. But but things have changed. Things have slowed down. Growth has been incremental and not exponential. Um, in some cases, um, growth has started turn gone backwards, and people are not are uh, receding. Uh, and and that's been kind of that's been kind of a kind of a challenge because you know wh- what do we make of it? Where people are now using the term beer bubble? What's what's going to happen? Sure, and and you know I'll be clear at the outset. You know I don't think we're in a bubble, but we are moving to a more competitive industry. And you know I think you've really hit at the crux of it that you know we've seen that amount of growth, and there's still growth out there. I mean, craft's going to grow. You know, probably a little bit less than we measured it at mid-year, but, you know, probably something like 4% this year, which would still be a million barrels of growth, which if you go back to 2008 and ask them, you know, what they think about a million barrels of growth, everyone everyone would have taken it. 
Um, but even with still lots of growth out there, it's getting sliced up in ways that never has been before. So, you know, a million barrels of growth now needs to support 7,000 plus breweries. And, and that number grows by you know, almost three a day. Um, so, you know, what we're seeing is that while there still are growth opportunities, it's, it's no longer as much a rising tide raises all boats, that there's a little bit more of a, a zero-sum game going on, to, to use an economics term. And, and so if one brewery is increasing, particularly in distribution, um, another brewery is probably going down. Now, I'm going to do an economist thing here and contradict myself immediately, <laughs> um, which is to say that you know, one, one reason there isn't a, a, you know, a brewery bubble in my mind is that you know, the vast majority of all of those breweries don't make very much beer, even if you put them all together. So if you look at the smallest 75% of breweries in the country, they make less than 0.6% of the beer that's made in the U.S. And in total, once you add in imports, they sell less than one out of 200 beers that get sold in the U.S. So, you know, you're talking about thousands and thousands and thousands of breweries. And if you add them up, um, you know, they're collectively making less than one out of 200 beers. So, you know, can all of those breweries succeed? Well, you know, no business, everyone succeeds. But can most of those breweries succeed? Yes, probably. If they're locally focused, they're making high quality beer, if they're running a good business, and they're thinking about, you know, the types of things that, that any service business, which is really what a lot of brew pubs and, and small tap rooms are, need in order to stay in business. And so that, so I think um, we're getting into a, a part that I think is really the root of what I wanted to talk about is is um, how does a big brewer uh, carve out uh, their niche, uh, a regional brewer, a local uh, community brewer, uh, uh, even the nano brewers that serve neighborhoods. Um, is there room for all of these in play? I mean, realistically, or is there are are there bigger pieces of pie uh, relative to size uh, being handed out to uh, one aspect of of the breweries? Yeah, it's a great question, and you know, I think you're hitting it at something that's you know really important, which is not all breweries created equal, and, and they're really competing in in different parts of the marketplace. You know, the scale that the large multinational brewers are playing at is, you know, is mind-boggling for um, a small brewer. I mean, you know, take ABI, who, you know, sells, you know, 90 million barrels in the U.S. and, you know, 525 million barrels globally. Um, I mean, globally, they're selling, you know, more than two times as much as the entire U.S. beer market put together. So, so the scale that they're looking for in terms of innovation, in terms of sales, in terms of, you know, what they're doing is just, is just so radically different than, you know, a local brewery that, that it's kind of it's almost impossible to talk about them in, in, at the same time. So we can break this down a little bit. Um, you know, what is a, you know, what does an AB or a Miller Coors need to do? Um, you know, they're competing in a very broad space where, you know, they have lots of concerns about just total volume. You know, how can they help turn total beer volume around and, um, you know, compete not just with other breweries, but with wine and spirits for, for those kind of general beer occasions. Um, for regional craft brewers, you know, I think their challenge right now is, how do they compete in a space where they're caught between the scale of the large brewers? You know, they're never going to be able to compete with that kind of scale, or not never, but, you know, no time in the near future. Um, and at the same time, you know, navigate an environment where there's 7,000 local brewers who are very nimble in their local markets. And, you know, that's a place where we're seeing a lot of pressure within craft, that it's hard to be a, a regional craft brewer that distributes broadly now because you're having to go to a whole bunch of places where lots of small brewers have home field advantage. And you're also trying to sell in these big channels where, where the large brewers have lots of scale. I think as you move down, then you know, it becomes clearer what, what really small brewers need to do. Um, you know, they need to do the things I was just talking about. They need to keep you know, quality levels high. They need to keep service levels high. 
and they really need to think about what their niche is. There's 7,000 breweries in the country, so you know, in most markets, people are going to have choice as to where they go, and, and brewers just need to think about, you know, why are they going to come to my brewery, um, particularly if they're selling you know, most of their beer at the brewery, so that's, that's going to be the primary place where you're getting sales. Why would they come to my brewery versus another brewery? Is it quality? Is it the styles I'm making? Is it the brand and what I stand for? Um, is it my service level? Is it my food if I'm a brew pub? Is it all of the above? And, and the brewers that really have that niche and have a reason that you know, customers, beer lovers are going to keep coming back um, are the ones that are going to continue to succeed even as we get more and more breweries coming online. Well, and it seems like right now, too, along with that, just generally speaking, if we're talking at um, – you know, uh, relatively similar competitive breweries, um, and assuming like in hotspots, uh, like I'm here in Oregon, we've got a few hotspots. You know, San Diego, where you are in in Colorado, there there are a number of hotspots. So it's fair to assume that generally speaking across the board, the quality of beer is very very high. The uh, and even if we're talking um, regional breweries then it, it almost seems like it, it comes down to we need to have a better point of distinction and we need to have um, um, this, uh, something that separates us from the pack. But beer quality, it seems these days, is not going to be that thing like it once was, um, which kind of speaks to, well, is that a brewing thing? Is that a marketing thing? But we're definitely going through some growing pains as an industry, and, and what comes out of it I think will be stronger. But there's going to there's gonna be some, some, uh, some tragedies along the way, I, I fear. I think that's completely true, and you know, you know, one way I, I like to illustrate it to people is in the language of you know necessary versus sufficient. Um, you know, five years ago it was probably sufficient to make great beer to succeed. Um, now it's necessary but not sufficient. Um, you know, that's the baseline. You have to make great beer, but you're also going to have to do other things. And if you know you're not running your business effectively, if you're not working, you know, if you're in distribution, if you're not working with your distribution partners well, but you know, just making great beer isn't going to be enough because there's other partners who are making great beer um, and are also doing those other things. So, you know, certainly we're going to see closings, and, and I'm happy to chat more about that because, um, you know, it's a topic that, that I'm interested in and I try to track very closely. But, you know, some of that's just a natural part of any industry. And, um, you know, the beer industry has been a little bit spoiled recently in that everyone has succeeded. And I think we're just you're simply coming back down to earth a little bit where, um, you know, some of the basic laws of business dynamics are going to take hold a little bit more going forward. Well, and it, and I think it would be fair to uh, just remind just the general audience and beer drinkers everywhere that this is this is precedented. It happens in every industry. This happened in the beer industry um, in the past century, in the century before that, with the Civil War. You go back to the 1700s. I mean, you know, just reading some of these historical accounts of of what breweries had to go through and what uh, Guinness, as a brewery specifically, has gone through over its you know several hundred year history this is all this is all par for the course would would you agree i i would you know i mean you know history doesn't repeat itself but it certainly rhymes and you know within business cycles we can we can see this both within other industries and, and within brewing in the past i mean even more recently we had a you know an explosion in the the mid 90s and then you know had a slowdown in the late 90s early 2000s and you know, you talk to brewers who are around for that and this, and, and, and there's a lot of parallels. They see a lot of things that are pretty similar uh, between that slowdown and this slowdown in terms of, you know, the number of people who are rushing in, in terms of, you know, how the market's reacting to, to a more competitive environment. 
Um, so I certainly think there's, there's a lot of parallels there and just more in general. I mean, we've seen other products where we saw this explosion um, in the number of, of players and, and it can't last forever. It, it has to change. And, um, you know, I'll again underline that, you know, some of this is just not things collapsing, but a return to normalcy. Brewing has arguably been the most successful, you know, small business in the U.S. in the last decade. You look at you know, stats from the, the Small Business Administration on SBA loans, and brewers literally had the lowest default rate of any industry on those loans. Oh, so, wow. You know, brewers haven't just been successful. They've been historically successful compared to, to other small businesses in the U.S. And so, you know, when we see that closing rate start to tick up a little bit, this isn't a bubble bursting. It's brewing returning to earth when we've been, you know, soaring 30,000 feet above the ground for years and everybody's been successful. And, um, you know, hopefully that's one of the roles we can play, too, in, in transmitting that information, making sure that new brewers, as they come in, you know, understand the market as it is, not as, as they, you know, idealistically envision it, um, and helping the brewers that, you know, want to continue operating their businesses to, to be successful and as things get more successful more competitive. Well, I remember um, Ray Dalio, of course, you know, Ray Dalio, uh, just an incredible, uh, uh, iconic uh, investor in the U.S. Um, He put out a a short, like 30 minute video, um, kind of explaining how the U S economy works. And, and it was all done with great gravity. It, it, you know, I am not an economist. I don't look at uh, uh, numbers and stats all day long. So this was, this was really great for me to just kind of get a, a good overview on it. Um, but in that, in that video, he talks about just natural cycles and, you know, macro, like the overall macro cycles and the smaller micro cycles and, and the meso cycles in between, um, given that, and you just kind of alluded to that too, that we're just returning to a normal cycle and all these cycles are all about just balancing each other. Where are we as a beer industry? Where are we in that, in that cycle? And what do you, what do you, I I believe I've heard you say you don't like predicting things because, you know, that's kind of woo woo. But if you had to predict, where do you see us going and where are we? Yeah, sure. And, and, you know, I will underline, you know, forecasting things is hard because, you know, trends continue until they don't. And, you know, it's very hard to read the tea leaves and, and know when those trend lines are going to change. But, you know, certainly, you know, where are we right now? We're, you know, we're overall in a beer industry that's, that's kind of steadily losing volume. You know, if you look at this historically, you know, beer, wine, and spirits, the, the total consumption of beverage alcohol is pretty constant. But, you know, within those three, we see different levels of, of beer, wine, and spirits, you know, changing. And, and right now, beer is, is losing to, to wine and spirits. Um, but within small brewing, you know, we're still seeing this explosion in, in the number of small players. And, you know, I think the next couple of years are going to be going to be more of the same. Uh, we're going to see, you know, total beer volumes. There's going to be a lot of pressure on them. Um, you know, so that means that the breweries in broad distribution um, are going to have more challenges. We're going to continue to see craft grow, but at a, a slower rate than we have in the past. Um, so, you know, the, the craft brewers like, you know, Sierra, New Belgium, you know, Boston Beer with Sam Adams, you know, those types of breweries um, are going to are gonna face a pretty competitive environment where because the total pie isn't growing that much, it's, it's hard for them to gain. Um, at the same time, we still see a lot of interest from consumers. And, and remember, this is all driven by, by what consumers want, what the drinker wants um, in local, in that, you know, local service model around, you know, tap rooms and group pubs around a lot of variety. Um, and so I think we're going to see that brewery number rise, even if, you know, closings and openings get a little closer together. I wouldn't be surprised to see, you know, nine or 10,000 breweries in the U.S. in a couple of years. 
Um, so I think that's gonna that's gonna lead to a lot of clutter. It's gonna lead to you know a wonderful market if you're um, you know interested in all of that variety and all of that choice. But but it's probably gonna be something that's gonna take a while to to fully shake and sort out. And um, you know we, we're gonna continue to see that competitiveness and, and the number of closings rise in the coming years. Well, and it seems to me that um, that smaller smaller pubs and breweries that um, that are not solely focused on distribution. Uh, my my hunch is that they might be somewhat insulated by this highly competitive environment, just because they serve a local community. And and frankly, you know whether the brewery is good or not, if it's close to home and it's not that bad, it, that's just easy. Uh, and by all means, correct me if I have that uh, uh, completely backwards. But it seems to me you just mentioned like New Belgium and Sierra Nevada, for example. Um, if they're competing uh, competing with a uh, a, a more regional brewery or a more local brewery, but but basically toe to toe on the grocery store shelf. You know these these breweries are so much bigger and have so much more economies of scale than a smaller brewery does. How how does a smaller brewery compete? Well, you know, I think you know for any brewery, it, it, it boils down to you know what's your what's your value proposition for the beer drinker. You know, when they show up at the shelf. Um, you know, why are they going to pay whatever price you're charging versus, you know, there's inevitably going to be options that are cheaper and there's inevitably going to be options that are more expensive. Yeah. Um, so, you know, why, why are they going to choose your beer at that price point? And you know, different brewers are going to, are going to find different reasons. You know, are you, are you making something that's innovative that, that nobody else is making? Um, are you using, you know, ingredients that, that appeal to the consumer? Um, are you a local brewer that they've, you know, maybe been to? And, um, you know, many of these things overlap too. Um, you know, one of the things we see that local brewers can have, I think, you know, some advantages in the marketplace is a high percentage of consumers say that after they visit a brewery, they're more likely to buy that brewer's beer. And, you know, if you're a local consumer, um, you can drive people to your brewery, give them that branding experience, you know, really present your beers in the way you intend to present them. And then when they go to the grocery store, they, they remember that. Um, they know that, that they had a great time, that they learned something about that particular beer they're considering buying. And, and that's certainly an advantage that they're going to have. Um, so I think there's lots of ways to do this, um, but you know, providing a consistent brand and, and making great products are, are just are just the start. And and so you talked about how um, you know a couple of different things that consumers may look at, and I'm sure you have surveyed and done all the stats on it. But as as far you like the the value proposition, um, we're talking about quality. But at some level, the quality is pretty high that it's indistinguishable. Um, but what are some of these different uh, key indicators that you have looked at that consumers might be using to make their choice? Yeah, sure. I mean, there's a bunch of them. Um, you know, lo- local is one. Certainly local is something that, that matters. Um, taste flavor is still number one. So, you know, quality is, I think, high across the board um, and, and if anything else improving. But, you know, if you can really drive home to a consumer that, that – you're providing them the taste flavor that they want. That's still the number one reason why, why people say they buy craft. So, okay. um, you know, and, and, and people have different profiles. So, you know, even if, you know, somebody else is making a high quality West Coast IPA and you make a, you know, high quality, um, you know, hazy IPA, um, you know, what the consumer wants in terms of flavor is, is, is going to be a primary determinant there. So, so that's one thing that matters. Um, you know, one kind of general point I'll make here, too, because you were talking about the difference between, you know, a, a small brewer and a larger brewer, is um, we still see that higher-priced craft beer tends to be growing faster than, than lower price point, just in, based on aggregated scan data. 
Um, and what I take from that is that people are still willing to pay, you know, good money. You know, beer is an affordable luxury, but they're willing to pay good money for a product that they think stands out in some way. You know, is that taste flavor? Is that because it's local? Is that because, you know, they love that brand? Is that because it's, you know, it's new and innovative? Um, but, but that we still see craft consumers willing to, you know, reach on the shelf, not necessarily just for the cheapest things, but for the things that, that they think they want because they're, they stand out in some way. And, um, you know, small brewers can do that in a variety of ways, and, and we continue to see them innovate and, and do that. Okay. Well, then, if, if I can ask a, a fairly pointed question that, Bart, if you, if you owned a small uh, local or even a smaller regional brewery, um, and knowing everything that you do, what would be your play to uh, increase impact and growth? Sure, sure. That's a that's a great question. I, I will say up front, um, you know, people who study things are often, you know, terrible at actually doing them. I, I think I would be a terrible entrepreneur. I'm a much better academic. Um, well, that's why I wanted know, to, to point you know, the I, question. I would, I would certainly find a niche. I would, you know, I would find something that that I didn't think was being done in a particular area um, that you know I thought I could focus on and do well. Um, you know, just personally too, I, I would suggest you know you can't just chase passion projects. So it can't just be what you love. I mean, you have, really have to do what the market's going to support. But um, you know, I would probably find a, a niche that I didn't think was being served locally that you could see a model where it's worked in some other place. So um, you know, I'd, I'd probably spend more time on this than than the thinking I've, I've spent in the last thirty seconds. But you know, I can give you an example. Um, you know, we've seen a model of you know the kind of super high value, locally produced, you know, sour wild brewery, you know, do very well in a couple of places. So you've got, you know, Jester King in Texas or, you know, somebody like, um, you know, Crooked Stave here in Colorado or, um, you know, uh, Logsdon Farms in Oregon. I mean, there's kind of examples of this all over, very local products, using local ingredients, you know, high value, small batch, um, you know, maybe find a location where there isn't a brewery like that um, and try to replicate that model in that place. Um, so I think that's, you know, one example of, of how we're still seeing, you know, there's opportunities, but admittedly those niches are getting smaller. It's getting harder. There are more breweries in more places. Um, so, um, you know, I think it, it, it becomes harder and harder over time to carve out, uh, one of those for yourself. And I've got nothing for respect for the entrepreneurs that continue to open breweries in this environment. Cause I'm amazed by how many of them are still able to find one of those, even in places with a lot of breweries. Oh, it takes some serious mojo to enter the, the, the brewing market. Now, ten years ago, you know, it was a heyday, but but now it's just like, wow. Um, I, I good luck to you. But to, to your point about some of these, yeah, you know, um, go, go, no, go ahead. I was just going to say, yeah, you know, I, I mean, I often you know tell people that you know in the olden days you could kind of just throw a dart at the dartboard and wherever it hit was probably going to work. Um, and you know now you really got to be you know hitting that bullseye in terms of did I pick the right location? You know, not just you know, broadly geographically, but, you know, did I pick, you know, specifically the right space, you know, so that, that rent relative to foot traffic or, um, you know, whatever else you're looking for actually makes business sense. Did I pick the right set of styles to brew? Did I pick the right team? Um, you know, you, you really gotta be, be hitting the mark on a lot of those. Whereas I think you're totally right. You know, five or 10 years ago, um, I don't want to say it was easy because starting a business is never easy. It's always takes a lot of hard work and capital, but, um, I think you could err on a lot more on, you know, what beers you're making, where you picked and, and still be successful because the demand was growing so, so fast. And as that demand growth has slowed and we've seen more supply, um, you know, you really got to be focused in on what you're doing. Well, and, and 
You know, getting back to your point, too, about some of those uh, niche-type breweries, um, you know, IPA is still king. Um, pales have moved up in, in, um, in, in ranking. Even uh, um, kind of like German-style lagers or lagers and pilsners um, are, are kind of waking back up again, too. My fear, if I were to open a, a brewery, you know, there are breweries that do spontaneous only or uh, spontaneous beers only or cask ales only or just like, you know, different styles of like German only beers. Uh, the point of distinction for those breweries is obviously built in because not everyone's making those. But it, my fear my fear would be that it would just make the environment that much more competitive just because right now people want IPAs, pails and lagers. Yeah, you know, one thing I'll say is that, um, you know, what you shouldn't be thinking about is what's the market share, but what's the market share divided by the number of people who are doing it? So okay. you know, people think about the demand side a lot, but you got to think about both the, the supply and the demand side. So, yes, IPAs are, are doing very, very well, and, and they're growing, um, but how many people are making IPA? All um, and, and what you really want to be looking at is, is both sides of that balance. So, um, you know, adding another IPA to the market where there's, you know, thousands and thousands of brands may or may not be a better value proposition, depending on where you're located, than adding a German lager if, if nobody's doing German lager, even if that's a pretty small niche. So, um, you know, brewery owners, both current and prospective, need to be thinking about both supply and demand. And, um, you know, often you see these niches that, yeah, they're not growing very fast, you know, or they're pretty small overall. But if no one's doing it, and you're the only one who is, and you think you can you can stand out in that marketplace, um, you know that's that might be a, a great niche. Um, you know, I'll, I'll give an example: um, Allagash White, tremendous beer. Um, you know, how many other, even you know, in the Northeast, you know, widely distributed Belgian wit beers can you think of? I mean, there aren't that. I'm sure there are some, but there aren't that many. Um, and so, even though that style isn't growing as fast, it's not as you know sexy these days as you know a hazy New England style IPA. You know that's probably a, a pretty profitable space, pretty successful space for for Allagash to be in because they can really own that. Um, and and so both that supply and demand piece are, are really important here. You know, even if IPA is growing really fast, if everyone's doing it, that might not be the way to go. And and I think it seems like that would be up to the brewery that uh, obviously supply and demand being what it is, there will always be a demand for an X type of beer. But but economically speaking, is it worth it to to fill that small demand? And and I mean, you talked you kind of talked about the loss of supply and demand. That's that's uh, economics one hundred and one. That even I know. But um, but there are some beer styles that are going to go commercially extinct just because there's not enough people that want them. Yeah, no, that's that, that's completely true, and you know sometimes it's unfortunate if it's a if it's a beer style you like. Um, there's a brewer around here who who makes a a pub ale. They call it a pub ale. It's you know it's an English mild. I love this beer. Uh, I wish I wish it was everywhere. I wish it was in every store I walked into. And I've talked to the brewer about it, and and they say you know we love it too, but nobody buys it. Um, and so you know they're they're continue you know continuously thinking about discontinuing it. Um, and so, you know, you, you got to be thinking about both sides. you got to be thinking about how big that demand niche is, you know, just because you're the only one doing it. Um, well, because you're the only one doing it, there might be a reason for that um, because there's, there's no demand in the marketplace. So, um, you know, my general point here is just you got to be thinking about both sides. you got to be thinking about how big that potential is, but also how many people are, are competing for that market that you're going after. Well, it's funny that you brought up that example. That was exactly the style of beer I had in mind, just a, a low ABV British mild that they quite literally used to drink all day long, breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Um, and those are just an absolute 
blessing when you can find them, but you, yeah, you can't find them anymore. Um, so, yeah, and it's, it's worth underlining that, you know, brewers and, you know, some of the kind of beer industry folks are probably not the best model of the marketplace. I've, I learned long ago that my preference is, I won't say have no relation to the craft marketplace, but you know, what I like is probably not a very good indicator of where the middle of the craft market is. And I think that's true for many brewers, too. So they've got to really separate their own personal likes and dislikes from you know, what's selling in the marketplace and, and what they see growing. Well, I've, I've had a... Um quite a few conversations with a diverse group of brewers and you know in the wine world they have a saying it takes a lot of beer to make wine well in the brewing world it, it's like it, it takes a lot of like british mild and and uh and just good old-fashioned american light lager to brew ipas and and and, and other fantastic beers but yeah totally true um i want to if i can i, I kind of want to pull out of that conversation and shift gears a little bit and just go go to that 30,000 uh, foot level and just kind of get an overview of just the economic side of beer. And, and I I would love for you to add some historical perspective to this from a, obviously an economic point of view, but um, but uh, I want just kind of a general understanding of, of how the economics work from um, from the supplier, that, whether it's the brewer or importer, to the second tier, the distributor, the retails. Um, but I also would love to get your take on. Um, I've seen these um, uh, these phrases used of like primary, secondary, and tertiary beer businesses too. I'd like a better understanding of that, if 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 you can. Sure. Um, yeah. So. Sorry, that's a lot of questions um, lots, at once. <laughs> lots there, so lots of lots of places to start. So let's just start with a just you know really big overview of the of the three tier system and kind of the beer value chain in the U.S. And you know I'll, I'll start by saying that this is very much you know politically created. You know what beer markets look like is not purely about economics. Much of it's about politics, and and so we have a very different system here in the United States than what you would see in another country uh, based on their you know legislative and regulatory structure. So this is this is really actually part of a beer that I. I love because it's, it's political economy much more so than just pure economics. But um, here in the United States, we have largely a three-tier system. Um, this comes out of the 21st Amendment, which left uh, the rules for governing beverage alcohol to the states. Um, and the states have tremendous variation in how they um, how they enforce them. So I'm going to say three-tier, but in many states, it isn't really three-tier. Um, you can be a single tier. You could, in some states, there's two tiers. Um, but the three-tier system, which is kind of the idealized version of this, is a supplier or brewer sells beer to an independent distributor, who's that middle tier, um, and then that independent distributor sells it to the retailer, who sells it to the customer. Um, and the basic logic of this was coming out of the system that predated prohibition, the tight house system, but they really wanted to separate suppliers and retailers so that suppliers couldn't push their products down to local retailers where they weren't feeling the social effects of alcohol. So mm. let's insert this middle tier. They can be a buffer between suppliers and retailers um, and hopefully cut down on some of the abuses that, that led to the tight house system and then led to prohibition. Um, second part of your question, you know, kind of thinking about the, the rings of the industry, um, you know, you can also, you also hear the words, you know, direct, indirect, and induced um, when you're talking about economic impact, but, you know, primary, secondary, tertiary works as well. You know, in the beer industry, we have, we have the primary participants. We have the brewers. We have, um, you know, if you want to think about the beer distributors as, as part of that primary direct as well, you can do that and, and, and the retailers. So these kind of primary businesses that are involved in, in making and selling beer. Um, the secondary then would be all of the, the suppliers who work with them. They don't necessarily have to just work with beer companies. 
Um, you know, many of them do. If you think about hops, I mean, hops is pretty much only part of beer, but, you know, that's a, that's a supplier industry. You know, barley is another one. Uh, but then, you know, this goes into can manufacturers, kind of all those, those secondary ripples that supply the products that are necessary in order for those, those primary sellers of beer and producers of beer to operate. Um, and then the tertiary or, you know, induced if you're using the, the economic impact terms would be that, that kind of next layer of ripples. So, you know, A, the people who supply them, but, you know, brewers support lots of other businesses because they pay workers wages and, and those workers then go out to eat and buy cars and do all sorts of other stuff. So, um, you know, in, in economics, you, you would think of, you know, kind of modeling out the whole industry. You've got the makers. Then you've got the people who supply the makers, and then you've got all the other ripples in the economy um, that touch those, those those various businesses. Okay, and and so where do where do um, uh, like beer magazines and online magazines and and you know other beer podcasts like this one? Where do those fall within that uh, lineup? Sure, you know, and 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 you know, I, I will say not all these models are, are neatly put together, but you know, certainly, I you know, I would think of them as kind of you know that that secondary. I mean, they're not necessarily direct suppliers, but they're certainly you know a part of the industry. They're interacting with with those you know primary companies directly. Um, I guess other people could maybe think about them as tertiary as well, um, but they're kind of somewhere between that second or third. They're maybe not direct suppliers to to the brewers, but you know, certainly the brewers are consuming a lot of that information. They're participating in the process of you know directly of you know helping make these. Podcasts, um, so so yeah, and you know, beer beer is great because it does have that a lot of culture around it. Um, it's not just you know purely a, an economic business, but because it's it's you know such a wonderful social lubricant that you know lots of people are passionate about it. You know, even outside of the business aspects, and and you have this community of. Uh, of bloggers, of writers, you know, some of whom are making money, some of whom are doing it for fun. You know, now that we have YouTube, you have, you know, the beer reviewer culture, yeah. um, you know, and there's lots of other great associated parts of the industry, which is, which is one reason it's such a rich industry and such a fun industry to be a part of is it goes beyond just the business aspects and there really is this cultural aspect as well. Um, you know, it's, it, you know, it kind of reminds me of uh, the good old days during the California gold rush where some people got uh, rich, and but most people got even poorer than they started. Um, but you know, the conversation always, has always been that the real money, the, at least the, uh, the, um, the better promise of money was selling shovels and pickaxes to all those people going after the gold. Um, do you see a similar uh, situation going on in the beer industry? I wouldn't say it's quite as much. I mean, you know, I think people who, who have gotten in, you know, it, it, we're still more of a, a business-oriented industry than, than some others. I mean, you know, wine has long had the classic joke, you know, how do you make $10 million in the wine business? You start with $20 million. Exactly. Um, and, and we haven't seen quite as much in beer of, you know, the um, you know the, the people who get into beer making just because it, they think it'd be fun to own a brewery. You know, breweries, breweries a lot of cleaning. Um, you know, you don't get to be in Napa Valley and, and just, you know, have your, your wealthy friends come through. So, um, you know, and, and obviously not all wineries are like that. But, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm reinforcing a stereotype here a little bit, but um, I don't think beer has been quite like that. But there certainly is, uh, has been gold rush mentality at, at various times. Um, you know, I think you're right that you know we as an association see this because we we have allied trade members as well, and um, you know you have periods, especially when things were booming a few years ago, where lots of companies that weren't directly involved in beer were, were kind of circling the industry. So you know, t-shirt makers or um, you know insurance companies, um, and you know we certainly saw um, you know a lot of them come and go. The ones that have stuck around are the ones that always really wanted to focus on beer or beverage alcohol as part of their core business. 
Um, and, you know, I guess maybe those are the, the um, you know, shovel makers or the shovel sellers in, the, in this metaphor. Um, but I don't think it's been quite as bad as, as some. And, and certainly because beverage alcohol is, is such a big and profitable business in the U.S., it's been an ecosystem where most people, I think, have been able to survive. Well, and 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 thank you for uh, segueing to that next thing too. Just understanding the the overall beer business. I've you know, of course, on um, on BA, you published this that the overall beer industry represents about uh, I think I saw over a hundred and ten billion dollars. Is that right? Yeah, it's it's it's, it's 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 tremendously large. That's that's retail sales, not revenue. So the beer companies aren't aren't making 110 billion dollars. But you know, if you add up kind of what consumers are spending on beer, yeah, it's more than 100 billion dollars. The economic impact is is 250 billion dollars. Once you look at all those ripples to all the suppliers to to all the you know tertiary industries as well, and um, you know, and that's one piece within beverage alcohol that. Um, you know, is ar- arguably that large again. So, I mean, you're talking about a you know several hundred billion dollar industry, um, and that's one that you know has a huge economic impact you know across the United States, and and beer is a big part of that. And it's just mind boggling to think that you know during that time of prohibition that we didn't have a, a, a relative to uh, the uh, the economy of that time that we didn't have this much cash flow or you know the flow in the economic chain that is just. It's just hard to comprehend, which is part of the reason why they brought brewing back. Was hey, we got to we got to pay some bills, um, just for the sake of contrast. Yeah, no, I, I, it, it, it is worth pointing out that a lot of that economy still existed. It just wasn't a legal economy anymore, and so the people getting rich were the bootleggers, um, and and it was really the states who wanted that tax revenue. Who you know were one of the many groups that were pushing for it. Um, I only bring this up because you know this is a common thing you you see with cannabis now that that people say. Oh, you know, look at look at all the growth in all of the revenue that um, you know all, all of the the legal businesses, and a lot of that's not growth. A lot of that was there beforehand. It's just a transfer from an illegal black market to a you know semi legal gray market, and and prohibition was was similar. You know, beer consumption probably went down, but I don't think it went down that much. Yeah, it it was it everything is just coming out to the light, and 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 just from the reports that I've read that um, you know you know pound for if you're going to take a risk of getting thrown in jail or getting fined or something like that, then you might as well make it worth your while. And beer just didn't have the same punch that. Uh, bathtub gin had um of course yeah. the stuff wasn't really good so you had all the all the flavorings and and stuff that would hide some of those nasty flavors just thrown in there and then you've got the speakeasy scene of the roaring 20s but um but it's just kind of interesting to see how how that affects the culture overall yeah yeah totally and you know i, I wasn't implying that you know beer was the same as before but but certainly just you know, sometimes, you know, it's not like that, that economic impact all went away during Prohibition. A lot of it just shifted to, to places where suddenly it was a little bit more behind the scenes. Sure. Um, you spoke a little bit earlier about, you know, we're, since, you know, I mean, our focus is on the U.S. beer market, and, and this is the system that we have, our political system, and, and therefore our economic system. Uh, that that kind of uh, dances around the politics and just pure economics. Um, can you share uh, a contrasting example from a, a different country, say over in Europe, that kind of help us understand the difference between the systems and the economic impacts? Sure. Well, you know, I mean, the biggest is this mandated um, middle tier, and um, you know th- that varies again state by state. So um, you know, the, the three tier system is not 
ever been the same across the states, and you know it's not locked in place either. So you know we see constant evolution in this over time as the needs of you know both society and and the beverage alcohol business change. But um, you know the biggest difference when you look in other countries is they just don't have this middle tier of independent distributors. Um, and so um, you, or, you know, necessarily independent retailers. And so you'll see things like in the UK, for example, that, um, you know, many of the pubs are either owned by suppliers or, or these huge chains, um, or, you know, across the entire country where, you know, many are owned by, by the same people. Um, and there's not quite that same consolidation at the, you know, between the, the suppliers and the retail tier in the United States. You know, brew pubs are a, a tiny, mini, minor example. Um, but, you know, often a brew pub chain, even if it's a chain, will only be like 10 restaurants. And, um, you know, in the U.K., you're, you're seeing these groups that are, you know, hundreds, if not thousands uh, of people tied to a particular retailer. Um, so I think that's probably the biggest. You know, one of the other big things we see, and, and you see variants of this um, in the U.S., is where the state, the country itself, is very, very involved in beverage alcohol. And in certain states, we do have this. You know, Pennsylvania is a good example where the state's still very involved. Um, but, you know, in Swedish, in Sweden, there's a, there's a government alcohol monopoly. All of the purchasing is going through the government. Um, mm. So for the entire country, you know, all, all the liquor stores are going to be run by the government. They're going to be the wholesaler who's purchasing. And, and those are just some of the other models that you see if you look around the globe in terms of, you know, how do we choose to regulate this um, and, and how do we choose to control the economic flows of, of alcohol throughout the economy. Interesting. And I believe it, it, it's been a while, too, and, and all of my uh, my memory on this is fuzzy, but uh, I I believe I read that um, England went through a, a phase some time ago um, where you had all these uh, pubs that were... Uh, not owned from the um, uh, from the uh, equity stance, but uh, but they they were able to force their beer only their beer into some of these pubs, and that was kind of a prolific problem um, that just that they've had to uh, unwind and sort out, uh, kind of like a a, a, a pre Brexit, uh, if you will. Um, and if I have that right, that that seems to be what could have been our fate if we had not come up with this three tier system back in the in the late 20s when we started working on this? Yeah, that's certainly, you know, one direction. I mean, I think another direction is that, you know, very strict state control. Um, you know, that's certainly, if you, if there's, a, there's a classic book toward liquor control, uh, which, which came out, you know, kind of around the end of Prohibition, which is one of the foundational books that, that a lot of people used philosophically when they were thinking about setting up three-tier. But, you know, you read toward liquor control, and a lot of what it's pushing for is that the state should just control everything. You know, don't don't let this be just an economic, um, you know, d- decision because you know beverage alcohol is a unique product and, and may need to be regulated in unique ways. So that the state really should should be taking a lot more control. Um, and certainly not the direction that we see countries take, where they just say, um, you know, we're not going to let the, the free market take over here, and, and we're going to step in. Um, you know, another possibility is just trying to do a lot of stuff through taxes. So, um, you know, do we we raise beverage alcohol taxes on particular things, or do we set a price uh, floor so that we make sure that prices can't drop so low um, in particular products? But that often creates its own market perversions, and um, I'm guessing people don't want to go down that economic rabbit hole. Okay. Um, well, if you'll allow me, can we uh, just shift gears just a little bit once again? Um, what is the state in, uh, or what is the state of uh, online beer sales these days? What's happening in that arena? Sure. Yeah, still still pretty small, but growing. 
um, you know, lots of different models. And, and this is complicated in the U.S. because, um, again, we have you know, the state-by-state regulatory system. So, you know, you're not going to get, um, you know, an Amazon that can operate the same way in, in all 50 states. Or, you know, if it does, it has to be very sophisticated in how it does that behind the scenes. Um, you know, certainly it's something that I think everyone expects to grow, even if it's a pretty small percentage of the market. Um, and, you know, I, I would broaden this and say, you know, digital commerce is going to affect the beer industry in a whole variety of ways. Um, you know, we're going to see grocery pickup become more important as a percentage of, of grocery store sales. And, and then if so, you know, how do you regulate beverage alcohol within that? Um, you know, we have the, the Drizzly model now, you know, where, where you have a platform where people can see products from a whole bunch of different retailers um, in a particular place and, and then, you know, get the delivery of the products, you know, from a variety of, of stores. So does that change how, you know, retailers and stores look? Um, you know, certainly as, as a society, we're moving to a place where we expect to be able to pull out our smartphone and, and buy anything, anytime, and get it to us quick. Um, and, and beverage alcohol, because it's so unique um, in, in a regulatory structure, has generally been a little bit more resistant to that. To, than a lot of products. But, you know, at the end of the day, the consumer is, is very powerful in U.S. society. And if the consumer wants that kind of convenience, you know, we're going to see it grow. Um, I do think this is going to come less to beer than, than wine or spirits, simply because beer is he- heavy relative to its value. So, you know, moving beer around a lot just doesn't make quite as much economic sense as, you know, moving around a, a really fancy bottle of wine or, or you know, something, you know, a, a spirit that um, has, you know, indefinite shelf life and, um, you know, relative to its weight is probably worth a little bit more. Um, but certainly it's something that's going to grow and it's going to transform the beer business just like, you know, any technology has. Well, and and so when I think about the laws of supply and demand on you know on a Friday night when when I'm tired and we just we just want to uh, press the easy button you know then that's where as a consumer I can demand that I want my p- pizza delivered and oh can you pick up a six pack of uh, this beer for me um, but like you were talking about earlier there's just the sheer economics of supply and demand but then there's the whole political side and it'll be interesting to see how that happens because you know as you can see at at the time of this recording we're still in our stalemate with the federal government with the shutdown but you know you know sides don't want to give up their power so who's going who's going to win who's going to lose ultimately in these in some of these battles yeah and and those totally are going to be political fights you know i think you've already you know raised a really interesting one is kind of you know right now in the beer business we we typically think in terms of, you know, on-premise, you know, you're consuming beer on the premises there and off-premise, you know, you're taking beer off the premises to consume it. So, you know, the former is a bar, the, the latter is a grocery store. And, you know, digital commerce might really allow a blurring of lines here. So, you know, you want to order, you know, beer and wings from, you know, Buffalo Wild Wings. You know, that's an on-premise retailer, but, you know, you're taking it away and, you know, you're consuming it at home. And, um, you know, certainly a lot of those fights are going to be political. Does, yeah. uh, does a retailer, you know, an on-premise retailer in X state, do they have the right to, you know, send beer to a consumer at home, or does it have to be consumed in their licensed premises? And um, I don't think we're going to see one answer. You know, depending on which state you live in, you're probably going to get different ones. And uh, you know, Utah and California are going to be regulated differently. Yeah, that's that's going to be that's going to take some time to get all that sorted out, unfortunately. But um, um, so as we as we begin uh, winding down this um, this uh, interview, uh, one of the things I wanted to ask you uh, specifically, and, and we'll we'll uh, get to where people can contact you or get a, to see what it is you're putting out there at the end. Um, but what are some of the things um, that you would like? 
consumers and and uh, and breweries to better understand? I mean, what are those questions that uh, that you've never been asked, but you wish that people knew more? Um, great, great question. Um, you know, I'll, I'll start with consumers, and, and maybe I'll, I'll first I'll point to something that we as an association are trying to help consumers understand, uh, which is you know who makes their beer and um, you know which brewers are, are independent brewers, and that, that's who we represent. But we've got a we've got a new seal in the marketplace, an independent craft brewer seal that that any independent craft brewer is, is free to put on their packaging, um, and that's the result of we know that consumers care about this, but consumers don't know who's who. They don't know who's been acquired by Anheuser-Busch, um, and they don't know who's, you know, who's a, a local independent brewer. And so, you know, we created a seal to, to make it easy that brewers can put on their package. So when you go to the store, if that's something you care about, uh, which, again, we know a majority of craft consumers tell us that they care about, um, that you can easily figure that out and see that. Um, what else do I wish people asked about more? Um, you know, one of the things, you know, we talked about kind of, you know, beer's overall decline. You know, one thing that, that I don't think people understand are kind of, you know, A, those big cycles uh, of the industry that, you know, some of beer's decline is just, you know, long-term shifts in, in what consumers want. Um, but also, um, um, you know, that some of these, some of this is very predictable based on things like demographics and prices. You know, beer prices have gone up a lot relative to, um, uh, wine and spirits prices in, in recent years, and, and that's a you know big part of why we've seen you know beer lose volumes. Um, that's the kind of you know wonky economist stuff that that I don't get asked about very much, but that I hmm. find really interesting. Is, is this uh, stuff of like uh, some wineries are putting their wine in cans and making it uh, appeal more to the the typical uh, craft beer drinker? Are, are these the things that you're referring to? Yeah, you know, and, and just you know understanding. Uh, you know, I think people sometimes think of they're so into the beer business that they don't take that step back and think about this kind of, you know, beer drinkers as, as general consumers. You know, why uh, we're so we think of ourselves as so unique that we forget things like the laws of supply and demand. That mm, you know, yeah. that if prices go up on beer relative to other products, that that volume is going to go down. That you know, one of the things I enjoy is just transmitting some some really basic economics knowledge to the beer industry as a whole, which you know, because we've been a little bit insulated, because beverage alcohol is unique, um, you know, I think sometimes people have forgotten that, you know, beer, while it is unique and special and very, very different, I mean, a lot of the things about the beer market are, well, you can broadly see in, you know, economic rules and, um, you know, some of these basic economic principles. So helping people, you know, I always enjoy where it's not just, here's a beer-specific fact, but helping people get a general understanding of, here's why this beer fact is like it is. And, and why kind of those base trends can be predicted um, so that hopefully going forward, the, they can get a better understanding of what the next change in the beer market will be or, or, or why it's happening. Yeah, and, and one point I, I, I would like to just add to that, and I'm, I'm sure you feel the same way, is people will go and buy a $25 bottle of wine and get four glasses out of it or or, eat, or even higher-priced wine. Um, but... Uh, you know the craft beer drinkers know they're going to pay ten, maybe ten dollars, maybe a little bit more per six pack. But I, I still see, uh, you know, or hear about people complaining that oh, it's twelve dollars for a six pack. You know, but understanding all the work, all the effort, all the growers, all the different uh, primary, secondary, tertiary tiers that go into this, all the people the 
supplying the equipment, everything gets factored into this price. And for a six pack, you get to take it home for under $12 and, and be right as rain. Um, but you know, a, $30, $40 bottle of wine, the question is usually like, oh, is it any good? What does it taste like? Not, not, is there one cheaper? Yeah, amen. I mean, you know, I think, you know, beer has been a, been a victim of, you know, we were so successful at, um, you know, as a broad industry, you know, mechanizing, industrializing the product and, and driving costs down that, you know, we really did, you know, train the industry, train consumers that, you know, beer was, was cheap and, and readily available. And so, you know, part of the challenge for craft brewers is, has certainly been exactly that, explaining, you know, why paying a little bit more for this particular product is worth it. And, um, you know, I mean, you're exactly right, right that wine has done a you know, great job of this historically. Um, that, you know, nobody blinks an eye at, you know, paying, you know, a hundred bucks for, you know, uh, you know, Premier Crew Bordeaux. Um, mm-hmm. But when you start charging 15 bucks for a, a six pack, you know, people think that's insane. And despite the fact that, that tremendous amounts of work went into to making that beer. So, um, yeah, that's another place on the consumer side. You know, absolutely just educating on you know, why, you know, certain beers, you know, cost more and, and, and you know, why it's worth it for the consumer um, you know, to pay that, assuming that, you know, they like the flavors that are involved. Yeah, and, and, and believe me, I'm not advocating that we start selling six-packs for 15 or $20 per, because I'm also a beer consumer, but but just having that having that appreciation of like, hey, do you realize what a deal you're getting right now with all this incredible craft beer that's innovative and, and just kind of changing the way we think about stuff, we're getting at it at a tremendous deal if we really think about it. Yeah, no, completely. I mean, it's still it's still amazing to me that you can buy, you know, the best beers in the world, and and, and they're largely very affordable. Um, and you know, that's one reason I'm I'm passionate about and still love the the beer business is, you know, you can you can really taste the best beers in the world, and uh, you know, they do cost a little bit more, but they don't break your budget. Uh, whereas you know, in many other products, and you know, wine's a great example. Um, you know, very very hard to to drink these, you know super special wines that people talk about. Um, but, you know, in most markets, you're going to be able to go in and buy the best beer in the world, and it's not going to break your budget. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, uh, just a few more questions for you, Bart. Uh, with your experience and, and just the way you uh, approach, um, uh, actually, I'm here. Let me back out of that uh, question before this one. Um, if you had the opportunity to choose your very last beer and your very last meal, what would they be? Um. Good question. I, yeah, I always try to deflect these, but I, I've actually already in, recently in Trent um, said that um, uh, the Saison Brett from, from Boulevard would be my, you know, death row. Um, but they didn't ask about the food, so, so now i got to think about the food. <laughs> um, and, you know, and uh, I, I don't know. I mean, you know, that, that beer would par- parallel with so many things. Um, but, you know, I, mean, I make beef stew every uh, every winter. You know, the beef stew recipe I have that I really like. So I'll, I'll say today's on bright with beef stew, even though that's probably not the best pairing. Um, and and I should you know tear up my uh, my sister on certificate. Well, well, but I, I, you have access to uh, Julia Hurst, and I'm sure she could uh, help you. However, uh, I mean, choosing a saison, I mean, you open yourself up to so many different possibilities. So I have to just give you extra points for that one. Um, Okay, and then, uh, and then, yeah. Um, g- given your outlook on the beer industry and everything we've discussed, in your opinion, why does good beer matter? Um, you know, good beer matters for for a whole bunch of reasons. You know, I just at a personal level, um, you know, it's one of the things that, that makes life more pleasurable. You know, if if you're just you know doing a doing a nine to five and have nothing to look forward to at the end of the day. Um, 
you know, we'll, we'll, that's not that's not a fun life. Um, so, so that's one reason good beer matters. And then, you know, obviously I have to give the economist answer that um, it matters because it, it supports, you know, the economy and, and jobs all over the country. Uh, you know, 135,000 jobs directly at, at breweries and brew pubs that's just for small brewers now. So, um, you know, personally, because it's, it's something that makes life fun and economically because it's now, you know, a real business that a lot of people depend on. Excellent. Um, for for those brewers, those beer enthusiasts, and the professionals out there who want to learn more about um, about your work and, and the Brewers Association, where can they go? Sure. Well, they can they can check out you know things I write at our website, which is just brewersassociation.org. Um, I'm in the statistics section. The insights and analysis is is my writing. Um, I also post a lot of things on Twitter. Um, I'm at Brewers Stats. Um, so that's a good place to, to, to see what I'm working on and um, engage in the conversation around beer and beer stats. Awesome. Uh, Bart, is there anything else you want to add to this conversation? Um, no, other than uh, you know, I, I really believe I have the greatest job in the world. So thanks to all the small and independent brewers who are Brewers Association members and allow me to do what I do and, and you know, be uh, one of the very, very few beer economists in the world. Well, we appreciate you uh, coming on here and, and sharing this in, uh, insight with us. Uh, thank you for spending the time with us. Thanks for having me. All right. Take care. Thank you very much. Yep. Bye. Bye-bye. We find ourselves in a consumer's market where breweries buy for our attention. If you ask me, this is a great time to be a beer drinker. But if there are breweries out there that you love, make sure to vote with your dollars because in any competitive society, only the strongest will survive. Join us in the next episode where we dive into the history, the policy, and the politics of beer with a group that goes way back. Good Beer Matters is a show about great beer, great friends, and the experiences we create together. But it's also about better appreciation of the beer you enjoy. I believe better education leads to better enjoyment. So if you're a beer and food professional or even a beer enthusiast, then please subscribe to Good Beer Matters and visit me at goodbeermatters.net. After that, grab a beer, hang out with friends, and let the world open up. Thank you for listening. Cheers. Cheers.